0: Where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the episodes for this podcast. There is also a link on the website to the Facebook page for All Things Plantagenet. Okay, so now on to the show.
1: Visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Robin Cotter, July 2007. A Child's History of England by Charles Dickens. Chapter twenty five England under Richard the Third King Richard the Third was up betimes in the morning and went to Westminster Hall in the hall was a marble seat upon which he sat himself down between two great noblemen and told the people that he began the new reign in that place because the first duty of a sovereign was to administer the laws equally to all and to maintain justice. He then mounted his horse and rode back to the city, where he was received by the clergy and the crowd, as if he really had a right to the throne, and really were a just man. The clergy and the crowd must have been rather ashamed of themselves in secret, I think, for being such poor-spirited knaves." The new king and his queen were soon crowned with a great deal of show and noise, which the people liked very much, and then the king set forth on a royal progress through his dominions. He was crowned a second time at York, in order that the people might have show and noise enough, and wherever he went was received with shouts of rejoicing from a good many people of strong lungs, who were paid to strain their throats in crying,— God save King Richard! The plan was so successful that I am told it has been imitated since by other usurpers and other progresses through other dominions while he was on this journey. King Richard stayed a week at Warwick, and from Warwick he sent instructions home for one of the wickedest murders that ever was done- the murder of the two young princes, his nephews, who were shut up in the Tower of London. Sir Robert Brackenbury was at that time governor of the tower. To him, by the hands of a messenger named John Green, did King Richard send a letter, ordering him by some means to put the two young princes to death. But Sir Robert, I hope because he had children of his own, and loved them, sent John Green back again, riding and spurring along the dusty roads, with the answer that he could not do so horrible a piece of work." The king, having frowningly considered a little, called to him Sir James Tyrell, his master of the horse, and to him give authority to take command of the tower, whenever he would, for twenty-four hours, and to keep all the keys of the tower during that space of time. Tyrell, well knowing what was wanted, looked about him for two hardened ruffians, and chose John Dighton, one of his own grooms, and Miles Forrest who was a murderer by trade. Having secured these two assistants, he went, upon a day in August, to the tower, showed his authority from the king, took the command for four and twenty hours, and obtained possession of the keys. And when the black night came, he went creeping, creeping, like a guilty villain as he was, up the dark stone-winding stairs, and along the dark stone passages, until he came to the door of the room, where the two young princes, having said their prayers, lay fast asleep, clasped in each other's arms. And while he watched and listened at the door, he sent in those evil demons, John Dighton and Miles Forrest, who smothered the two princes with the bed and pillows, and carried their bodies down the stairs, and buried them under a great heap of stones at the staircase foot." and when the day came he gave up the command of the tower and restored the keys and hurried away without once looking behind him and sir robert brackenbury went with fear and sadness to the prince's room and found the prince gone for ever you know through all this history how true it is that traitors are never true and you will not be surprised to learn that the duke of buckingham soon turned against king richard and joined a great conspiracy that was formed to dethrone him, and to place the crown upon its rightful owner's head. Richard had meant to keep the murder secret, but when he heard through his spies that this conspiracy existed, and that many lords and gentlemen drank in secret to the house of the two young princes in the tower, he made it known that they were dead. The conspirators, though thwarted for a moment, soon resolved to set up for the crown against the murderous Richard, Henry, Earl of Richmond, grandson of Catherine, that widow of Henry V, who married Owen Tudor. And as Henry was of the house of Lancaster, they proposed that he should marry the princess Elizabeth, the eldest daughter of the late king, now the heiress of the house of York, and thus by uniting the rival families an end to the fatal wars of the Red and White Roses. All being settled, a time was appointed for Henry to come over from Brittany, and for a great rising against Richard to take place in several parts of England at the same hour. On a certain day, therefore, in October, the revolt took place, but unsuccessfully. Richard was prepared, Henry was driven back at sea by a storm. His followers in England were dispersed, and the Duke of Buckingham was taken, and at once beheaded in the market-place at Salisbury. The time of his success was a good time, Richard thought, for summoning a Parliament and getting some money. So a Parliament was called, and it flattered and fawned upon him as much as he could possibly desire, and declared him to be the rightful King of England, and his only son Edward, then eleven years of age— the next heir to the throne. Richard knew full well that let the Parliament say what it would, the Princess Elizabeth was remembered by people as the heiress of the House of York, and having accurate information besides of its being designed by the conspirators to marry her to Henry of Richmond, he felt that it would much strengthen him and weaken them to be beforehand with them and marry her to his son. With this view he went to the sanctuary at Westminster, where the late king's widow and her daughter still were, and besought them to come to court, where, he swore by anything and everything, they should be safely and honourably entertained. They came accordingly, but had scarcely been at court a month, when his son died suddenly, or was poisoned, and his plan was crushed to pieces." In this extremity King Richard, always active, thought, I must make another plan. And he made the plan of marrying the Princess Elizabeth himself, although she was his niece. There was one difficulty in the way. His wife, the Queen Anne, was alive. But he knew, remembering his nephews, how to remove that obstacle, and he made love to the Princess Elizabeth telling her he felt perfectly confident that the queen would die in February. The princess was not a very scrupulous young lady, for, instead of rejecting the murderer of her brothers with scorn and hatred, she openly declared she loved him dearly. And when February came and the queen did not die, she expressed her impatient opinion that she was too long about it. However, King Richard was not so far out in his prediction— but that she died in March. He took good care of that, and then this precious pair hoped to be married. But they were disappointed, for the idea of such a marriage was so unpopular in the country that the king's chief counsellors Ratcliffe and Catesby, would by no means undertake to propose it, and the king was even obliged to declare in public that he had never thought of such a thing. He was, by this time, dreaded and hated by all classes of his subjects. His nobles deserted every day to Henry's side. He dared not call another Parliament, lest his crimes should be denounced there. And for want of money he was obliged to get benevolences from the citizens, which exasperated them all against him. It was said, too, that being stricken by his conscience, he dreamed frightful dreams and started up in the night-time, wild with terror and remorse. Active to the last, through all this, he issued vigorous proclamations against Henry of Richmond and all his followers, when he heard that they were coming against him with a fleet from France, and took the field as fierce and savage as a wild boar, the animal represented on his shield. Henry of Richmond landed with six thousand men at Milford Haven, And came on against King Richard, then encamped at Leicester, with an army twice as great, through North Wales. On Bosworth Field the two armies met, and Richard, looking along Henry's ranks, and seeing them crowded with the English nobles who had abandoned him, turned pale when he beheld the powerful Lord Stanley and his son, whom he had tried hard to retain, among them. But he was as brave as he was wicked and plunged into the thickest of the fight. He was riding hither and thither, laying about him in all directions, when he observed the Earl of Northumberland, one of his few great allies, to stand inactive, and the main body of his troops to hesitate. At the same moment his desperate glance caught Henry of Richmond among a little group of his knights. Riding hard at him, and crying, Treason! he killed his standard-bearer, "'fiercely unhorsed another gentleman, "'and aimed a powerful stroke at Henry himself, "'to cut him down. "'But Sir William Stanley parried it as it fell, "'and before Richard could raise his arm again, "'he was borne down in oppressive numbers, "'unhorsed and killed. "'Lord Stanley picked up the crown, "'all bruised and trampled and stained with blood, "'and put it upon Richmond's head, "'amid loud and rejoicing cries of, "'Long live!' King Henry. That night a horse was led up to the church of the Grey Friars at Leicester, across whose back was tied, like some worthless sack, a naked body brought there for burial. It was the body of the last of the Plantagenet line, King Richard the third, usurper and murderer, slain at the battle of Bosworth Field, in the thirty second year of his age, after a reign of two years. End of chapter twenty five.
2: This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording by Nicholas James Bridgewater. Chapter twenty six of a child's history of england king henry the seventh did not turn out to be as fine a fellow as the nobility and people hoped in the first joy of their deliverance from richard the third he was cold crafty and calculating and would do almost anything for money he possessed considerable ability but his chief merit appears to have been that he was not cruel when there was nothing to be got by it. The new king had promised the nobles, who had espoused his cause, that he would marry the Princess Elizabeth. The first thing he did was to direct her to be removed from the castle of Sheriff Hutton in Yorkshire, where Richard had placed her, and restored to the care of her mother in London. The young Earl of Warwick, Edward Plantagenet, son and heir of the Duke of Clarence, Had been kept a prisoner in the same old Yorkshire castle with her. This boy, who was now fifteen, the new king placed in the tower for safety. Then he came to London in great state and gratified the people with a fine procession on which kind of show he often very much relied for keeping them in good humor. The sports and feasts which took place were followed by a terrible fever called the sweating sickness of which great numbers of people died lord mayors and aldermen are thought to have suffered most from it whether because they were in the habit of overeating themselves or because they were very jealous of preserving filth and nuisances in the city as they have been since i don't know the king's coronation was postponed on account of the general ill health and he afterwards deferred his marriage as if he were not very anxious that it should take place and even after that deferred the queen's coronation so long that he gave offence to the york party however he set these things right in the end by hanging some men and seizing on the rich possessions of others by granting more popular pardons to the followers of the late king than could at first be got from him and by employing about his court some very scrupulous persons who had been employed in the previous reign. As this reign was principally remarkable for two very curious impostures which have become famous in history, we will make those two stories its principal feature. There was a priest at Oxford of the name of Simons who had for a pupil a handsome boy named Lambert Simnel, the son of a baker, partly to gratify his own ambitious ends, and partly to carry out the designs of a secret party formed against the king. This priest declared that his pupil, the boy, was no other than the young Earl of Warwick, who, as everybody might have known, was safely locked up in the Tower of London. The priest and the boy went over to Ireland, and at Dublin enlisted in the cause all ranks of the people, who seemed to have been generous enough but exceedingly irrational the earl of kildare the governor of ireland declared that he believed the boy to be what the priest represented and the boy who had been tutored by the priest told them such things of his childhood and gave them so many descriptions of the royal family that they were perpetually shouting and hurrahing and drinking his health and making all kinds of noisy and thirsty demonstrations to express their belief in him nor was this feeling confined to Ireland alone for the Earl of Lincoln, whom the late usurper had named as his successor, went over to the young pretender and after holding a secret correspondence with the dowager duchess of Burgundy, the sister of Edward the fourth, who detested the present king and all his race, sailed to Dublin with two thousand German soldiers of her providing in this promising state of the boy's fortunes he was crowned there with a crown taken off the head of a statue of the virgin mary and was then according to the irish custom of those days carried home on the shoulders of a big chieftain possessing a great deal more strength and sense father simons you may be sure was mighty busy at the coronation ten days afterwards the germans and the irish and the priest and the boy and the earl of lincoln All landed in Lancashire to invade England. The king, who had good intelligence of their movements, set up his standard at Nottingham, where vast numbers resorted to him every day, while the Earl of Lincoln could gain but very few. With his small force he tried to make for the town of Newark, but the king's army, getting between him and that place, he had no choice but to risk a battle at Stoke. It soon ended in the complete destruction of the pretender's forces one half of whom were killed among them the earl himself. The priest and the baker's boy were taken prisoners. The priest, after confessing the trick, was shut up in prison where he afterwards died. Suddenly, perhaps, the boy was taken into the king's kitchen and made a turnspit. He was afterwards raised to the station of one of the king's falconers and so ended this strange imposition there seems reason to suspect that the dowager queen always a restless and busy woman had had some share in tutoring the baker's son the king was very angry with her whether or no he seized upon her property and shut her up in a convent at bermondsey one might suppose that the end of this story would have put the irish people on their guard but they were quite ready to receive a second impostor, as they had received the first, and that same troublesome Duchess of Burgundy soon gave them the opportunity. All of a sudden there appeared at Cork, in a vessel arriving from Portugal, a young man of excellent abilities, of very handsome appearance, and most winning manners, who declared himself to be Richard, Duke of York, the second son of King Edward IV. Oh, said some, even of those ready irish believers but surely that young prince was murdered by his uncle in the tower it is supposed so said the engaging young man and my brother was killed in that gloomy prison but i escaped it doesn't matter how at present and have been wandering about the world for seven long years this explanation being quite satisfactory to numbers of the irish people they began again to shout and to hurrah and to drink his health and to make the noisy and thirsty demonstrations all over again and the big chieftain in dublin began to look out for another coronation and another young king to be carried home on his back now king henry being then on bad terms with france the french king charles the eighth saw that by pretending to believe in the handsome young man he could trouble his enemies sorely So he invited him over to the French court and appointed him a bodyguard and treated him in all respects as if he really were the Duke of York. Peace, however, being soon concluded between the two kings, the pretended duke was turned adrift and wandered for protection to the Duchess of Burgundy. She, after feigning to inquire into the reality of his claims, declared him to be the very picture of a dear departed brother, gave him a bodyguard at her court, of thirty halberdiers, and called him by the sounding name of the White Rose of England. The leading members of the White Rose party in England sent over an agent named Sir Robert Clifford to ascertain whether the White Rose's claims were good. The king also sent over his agents to inquire into the Rose's history. The White Roses declared the young man to be really the Duke of York. The king declared him to be Perkin Warbeck, the son of a merchant of the city of Tournay, who had acquired his knowledge of England, its language and manners, from the English merchants who traded in Flanders. It was also stated by the royal agents that he had been in the service of Lady Brompton, the wife of an exiled English nobleman, and that the Duchess of Burgundy had caused him to be trained and taught expressly for this deception. The king then required the Archduke Philip who was the sovereign of burgundy to banish this new pretender or to deliver him up but as the archduke replied that he could not control the duchess in her own land the king in revenge took the market of english cloth away from antwerp and prevented all commercial intercourse between the two countries he also by arts and bribes prevailed on sir robert clifford to betray his employers and he denouncing several famous English noblemen as being secretly the friends of Perkin Warbeck, the king had three of the foremost executed at once. Whether he pardoned the remainder because they were poor, I do not know. But it is only too probable that he refused to pardon one famous nobleman against whom the same Clifford soon afterwards informed separately because he was rich. This was no other than Sir William Stanley, who had saved the king's life at the Battle of Bosworth Field, It is very doubtful whether his treason amounted to much more than his having said that if he were sure the young man were the Duke of York, he would not take arms against him. Whatever he had done, he admitted like an honourable spirit, and he lost his head for it, and the covetous king gained all his wealth. Perkin Warbeck kept quiet for three years, But as the Flemings began to complain heavily of the loss of their trade by the stoppage of the Antwerp market on this account, and as it was not unlikely that they might even go so far as to take his life, or give him up, he found it necessary to do something. Accordingly, he made a desperate sally, and landed with only a few hundred men on the coast of Deal, But he was soon glad to get back to the place from whence he came. For the country people rose against his followers, killed a great many, and took a hundred and fifty prisoners, who were all driven to London, tied together with ropes like a team of cattle. Every one of them was hanged on some part or other of the seashore, in order that if any more men should come over with Perkin Warbeck, they might see the bodies as a warning before they landed. Then the wary king, by making a treaty of commerce with the Flemings, drove Perkin Warbeck out of that country and by completely gaining over the Irish to his side, deprived him of that asylum too. He wandered away to Scotland and told his story at that court. King James the Fourth of Scotland, who was no friend to King Henry, and had no reason to be, for King Henry had bribed his Scotch lords to betray him more than once, but had never succeeded in his plots, gave him a great reception and called him his cousin, and gave him in marriage the Lady Catherine Gordon, a beautiful and charming creature related to the royal house of stuart alarmed by the successful reappearance of the pretender the king still undermined and bought and bribed and kept his doings and perkin warbeck's story in the dark when he might one would imagine have rendered the matter clear to all england but for all this bribing of the scotch lords of the scotch king's court he could not procure the pretender to be delivered up to him james though not very particular in many respects would not betray him and the ever busy duchess of burgundy so provided him with arms and good soldiers and with money besides that he had soon a little army of fifteen hundred men of various nations with these and aided by the scottish king in person he crossed the border into england and made a proclamation to the people in which he called the king henry tudor offered large rewards to any one who should take or distress him and announced himself as king richard the fourth come to receive the homage of his faithful subjects his faithful subjects however cared nothing for him and hated his faithful troops who being of different nations quarrelled also among themselves worse than this if worse were possible they began to plunder the country upon which the white rose said that he would rather lose his rights than gain them through the miseries of the english people the scottish king made a jest of his scruples but they and their whole force went back again without fighting a battle the worst consequence of this attempt was that a rising took place among the people of cornwall who considered themselves too heavily taxed to meet the charges of the expected war stimulated by flammock a lawyer and joseph a blacksmith and joined by lord audley and some other country gentlemen they marched on all the way to Deptford bridge where they fought a battle with the king's army they were defeated though the cornish men fought with great bravery and the lord was beheaded and the lawyer and the blacksmith were hanged drawn and quartered the rest were pardoned the king who believed every man to be as avaricious as himself and thought that money could settle anything allowed them to make bargains for their liberty with the soldiers who had taken them perkin warbeck doomed to wander up and down and never to find rest anywhere a sad fate almost a sufficient punishment for an imposture which he seems in time to have half believed himself lost his scottish refuge through a truce being made between the two kings and found himself once more without a country before him in which he could lay his head But James, always honourable and true to him, alike when he melted down his plate, and even the great gold chain he had been used to wear, to pay soldiers in his cause, and now, when that cause was lost and hopeless, did not conclude the treaty until he had safely departed out of the Scottish dominions. He and his beautiful wife, who was faithful to him under all reserves, and left her state and home to follow his poor fortunes, were put aboard a ship with everything necessary for their comfort and protection and sailed for ireland but the irish people had had enough of counterfeit earls of warwick and dukes of york for one while and would give the white rose no aid so the white rose encircled by thorns indeed resolved to go with his beautiful wife to cornwall as a forlorn resource and see what might be made of the cornish men Who had risen so valiantly a little while before and who had fought so bravely at deptford bridge to whitson bay in cornwall accordingly came perkin warbeck and his wife and the lovely lady he shut up for safety in the castle of st michael's mount and then marched into devonshire at the head of three thousand cornishmen these were increased to six thousand by the time of his arrival in exeter but there the people made a stout resistance and he went on to taunton where he came in sight of the king's army the stout cornish men although they were few in number and badly armed were so bold that they never thought of retreating but bravely looked forward to a battle on the morrow unhappily for them the man who was possessed of so many engaging qualities and who attracted so many people to his side when he had nothing else with which to tempt them was not as brave as they in the night when the two armies lay opposite to each other he mounted a swift horse and fled when morning dawned the poor confiding cornish men discovering that they had no leader surrendered to the king's power some of them were hanged and the rest were pardoned and went miserably home before the king pursued perkin warbeck to the sanctuary of Boulio in the new forest where it was soon known that he had taken refuge he sent a body of horsemen to St. Michael's Mount to seize his wife. She was soon taken and brought as a captive before the king, but she was so beautiful and so good and so devoted to the man in whom she believed that the king regarded her with compassion, treated her with great respect, and placed her at court near the queen's person. And many years after Perkin Warbeck was no more, and when his strange story had become like a nursery tale, she was called the white rose by the people in remembrance of her beauty the sanctuary of bolio was soon surrounded by the king's men and the king pursuing his usual dark artful ways sent pretended friends to perkin warbeck to persuade him to come out and surrender himself this he soon did the king having taken a good look at the man of whom he had heard so much from behind a screen directed him to be well mounted to ride behind him at a little distance guarded but not bound in any way so they entered London with the king's favourite show a procession and some of the people hooted as the pretender rode slowly through the streets to the tower but the greater part were quiet and very curious to see him from the tower he was taken to the palace at Westminster and there lodged like a gentleman though closely watched he was examined every now and then as to his imposture but the king was so secret in all he did that even then he gave it a consequence which it cannot be supposed to have in itself deserved at last perkin warbeck ran away and took refuge in another sanctuary near richmond in surrey from this he was again persuaded to deliver himself up and being conveyed to london he stood in the stocks for a whole day outside westminster hall and there read a paper purporting to be his full confession and relating his story as the king's agents had originally described it he was then shut up in the tower again in the company of the earl of warwick who had now been there for fourteen years ever since his removal out of yorkshire except when the king had had him at court and had shown him to the people to prove the imposture of the baker's boy it is but too probable when we consider the crafty character of henry the that these two were brought together for a cruel purpose a plot was soon discovered between them and the keepers to murder the governor get possession of the keys and proclaim perkin warbeck as king richard the fourth that there was some such plot is likely that they were tempted into it is at least as likely that the unfortunate earl of warwick last male of the plantagenet line was too unused to the world and too ignorant and simple to know much about it whatever it was is perfectly certain and that it was the king's interest to get rid of him is no less so he was beheaded on tower hill and perkin warwick was hanged at tyburn such was the end of the pretended duke of york whose shadowy history was made more shadowy and ever will be by the mystery and craft of the king if he had turned his great natural advantages to a more honest account he might have lived a happy and respected life, even in those days. But he died upon a gallows at Tyburn, leaving the Scottish lady who had loved him so well, kindly protected at the Queen's court. After some time she forgot her old loves and troubles, as many people do with time's merciful assistance, and married a Welsh gentleman. Her second husband, Sir Matthew Craddock, more honest and more happy than her first, lies beside her in a tomb in the old church of swansea the ill blood between france and england in this reign arose out of the continued plotting of the duchess of burgundy and disputes respecting the affairs of brittany the king feigned to be very patriotic indignant and warlike but he always contrived so as never to make war in reality and always to make money his taxation of the people on pretence of war with france involved at one time a very dangerous insurrection headed by Sir John Egremont and a common man called John a But it was subdued by the royal forces under the command of the Earl of Surrey. The knighted John escaped to the Duchess of Burgundy, who was ever ready to receive any one who gave the king trouble, and the plain John was hanged at York, in the midst of a number of his men, but on a much higher gibbet, as being a greater traitor. Hung high or hung low, however, hanging is much the same to the person hung. Within a year after her marriage, the Queen had given birth to a son, who was called Prince Arthur, in remembrance of the old British Prince of Romance and Story, and who, when all these events had happened, being then in his fifteenth year, was married to Catherine, the daughter of the Spanish monarch, with great rejoicings and bright prospects but in a very few months he sickened and died as soon as the king had recovered from his grief he thought it a pity that the fortune of the spanish princess amounting to two hundred thousand crowns should go out of the family and therefore arranged that the young widow should marry his second son henry then twelve years of age when he too should be fifteen there were objections to this marriage on the part of the clergy but as the infallible pope was gained over and, as he must be right, that settled the business for the time. The king's eldest daughter was provided for, and a long course of disturbance was considered to be set at rest by her being married to the Scottish king. And now the queen died. When the king had got over that grief too, his mind once more reverted to his darling money for consolation, and he thought of marrying the Dowager Queen of Naples, Was immensely rich, but as it turned out not to be practicable to gain the money, however practicable it might have been to gain the lady, he gave up the idea. He was not so fond of her, but that he soon proposed to marry the dowager duchess of Savoy and soon afterwards the widow of the king of Castile, who was raving mad. But he made a money bargain instead and married neither. The duchess of Burgundy, among the other discontented people to whom she had given refuge, had sheltered Edmund de la Pole, younger brother of that Earl of Lincoln who was killed at Stoke, now Earl of Suffolk. The king had prevailed upon him to return to the marriage of Prince Arthur, but he soon afterwards went away, and then the king, suspecting a conspiracy, resorted to his favourite plan of sending him some treacherous friends, and buying of those scoundrels the secrets they disclosed or invented. Some arrests and executions took place in consequence. In the end the king, on a promise of not taking his life, obtained possession of the person of Edmund de la Pole and shut him up in the tower. This was his last enemy. If he had lived much longer, he would have made many more among the people. By the grinding exaction to which he constantly exposed them, and by the tyrannical acts of his two prime favourites in all money-raising matters, edmund dudley and richard empson but death the enemy who is not to be bought off or deceived and on whom no money and no treachery has any effect presented himself at this juncture and ended the king's reign he died of the gout on the twenty second of april one thousand five hundred and nine and in the fifty-third year of his age after reigning twenty-four years he was buried in the beautiful chapel of westminster abbey which he had himself founded and which still bears his name it was in this reign that the great christopher columbus on behalf of spain discovered what was then called the new world great wonder interest and hope of wealth being awakened in england thereby the king and the merchants of london and bristol fitted out an english expedition for further discoveries in the new world and entrusted it to sebastian cabot of bristol the son of a Venetian pilot there. He was very successful in his voyage and gained high reputation both for himself and England. End of chapter 26
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of All Things Plantagenet. Remember, we also have a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com, where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the other episodes. Thank you for listening, and have a great day.